Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. So I'm here today on a very hot, sticky day in the Northeast, but it's not just us. It's hot all over the place. But I'm here with Margaret McNellis, author, book coach, and witch. And I am so excited to talk to her about all of those things, but mostly the book, because actually the two of us are doing a book launch together on September 21st, because our books are not unrelated. They both take place in the Middle Ages, only Margaret's is in England and mine is in Languedoc. So we just, and her book is YA and mine isn't. So that's enough for me. Margaret, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? The title, sure. uh, the title is The Red Fletch. Let me just put that out there. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. Thank you so much for for welcoming me on your show. So The Red Fletch is the first in the Heroes of Sherwood trilogy. It's a Robin Hood retelling that uh, focuses on an original main character, Alice. Alice is kind of interesting because she's a little bit like Chaucer in that she has access to both the, the peasant class and the nobility because of family ties. So she's in a unique place to to be involved with Robin Hood and his his crew. She starts out initially being on good terms with Robin, but then he and her brother leave for the Crusades. And when he comes back and her brother doesn't, she starts to be not as happy with Robin. (laughs) And it goes from there. Yeah, so, so I mean, I loved this character. Her name's Alice, A-L-Y-S, right? Yeah. Yes. And, um, and she, she just fascinated me because she had so many aspects of her personality. Did you base her on anybody in real life or was she, you know, or characters or something that, that you're really interested in? So she has kind of an interesting provenance. Years ago, I used to volunteer at the... Robin Hood Renaissance Festival, which was held in the town next to mine at the time. They've since moved it. And I wasn't an actor in it, though I have trod the boards before, but I was I was working in the ticket booth, but they encouraged us to come up with characters that we could play, you know, that were in line with these, you know, this time period. Not that as a Renaissance fair, they're not known for being historically accurate. They're just fun and it's it's all good. But Turkey um, legs, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remind me to tell you a story about turkey legs after you finish. Go ahead. (laughs) And so I came up with Alice. I always, I liked the name and the spelling of it, the medieval spelling of it. And, you know, I, I was friends with the actor who was playing Sir Guy of Gisborne. So, you know, to, to give her that kind of connection into that other world that she otherwise would not have any access to. It always fascinated me. And she just stuck with me for years. And then when I started to write this book, I was like, it's got to be Alice. She's got to be, you know, at the center of this. Okay. So do you think there's anything like, I mean, I, people sometimes ask me and I just, I don't know, it doesn't sort of enter my head, but it feels like you have this kind of empathy with this character 
And do you think, you know, maybe there's a little bit of previous life in there? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I believe in reincarnation, full bore. So I, I I definitely think that I do have in another book that I'm working on a character that I, I encountered in a past life regression. So yeah, I think that these things that come back to us, they're memories stored away in the deepest parts of our brain that we don't necessarily have access to in the way that we do our consciousness in this life. But I, I think they come out in other ways. Yeah, I mean, I kind of avoid thinking about those things myself, because it's just, it just makes my brain hurt. But but I appreciate I, I'm always interested when people say things like that. And, and they do, you know, like, this was me in another <laughs> life, you know, I mean, I have periods I'm drawn to, and who knows, you know, the yeah. 18th century, the Middle Ages, France, for sure. So anyway, it's just, it's just interesting to me. Yeah, I, I definitely think that. And I think that there are periods that we're not drawn to for the same reasons. Maybe we had a past life that didn't go so well, and we're not really eager to kind of relive that. I kind of think that that's why I'm really not into World War II fiction. Oh, my gosh, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> Maybe I was in the war and it didn't go well. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know either. I really don't. Yeah. So. So how tell tell me a little bit about the genesis of this particular story. I mean, we know about the Renaissance Fair thing in Alice, but you had a very you started out in a very different place with your writing. Let's let's sort of backpedal. Talk yeah. about how you got to how you got to be sitting where you are now with this book under your belt, so to speak. It's a long road. I'm happy to share though. I started out writing fan fiction, mostly Harry Potter fan fiction. I actually wrote a book length one that involved them Harry Potter and his friends discovering that animals that could fly could pass through the veil in the Department of Mysteries. So they send, it's a comedy, they send serious canary creams with Hedwig. He turns into a giant canary, escapes the veil, but then he's stuck as a giant canary for the rest of the book. And it's just ridiculous. I wish I still had it. it I deleted it by mistake somehow and it's gone, but it lives on in my memory. And just the thought of it is just so ridiculous. But then I went from that to writing horror, which was kind of a big leap as well. But, you know, I wanted to start writing original fiction and original characters. Nothing against fan fiction. I think it's a a really great way to learn how to write, you know, because someone's already done some of the work for you and you can just kind of slip in and, and learn other things as you go. And I kind of have this weird thing that like when every, when all the world falls in love with something, I start to lose interest. So, you know, I watched the walking dead for a little bit when it came out, but then it was zombies everywhere. And I got mm-hmm. kind of bored with them. And I was, I fell in love with historical fiction kind of at the same time. And it was Ken Follett's pillars of the earth that flipped that love. switch, which yeah. what a great book to flip that switch. Love. on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had tried reading pillars in high school for an extra credit project and I was not into it. And it just turned me off completely, but I was a kid, you know, and then I was working as a temp in New York city and for training for like two months, I had to take the train in every day. So I was on the train for five hours a day and nothing better for that than a Kindle. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to lug a 1000 page book on the train in August to New York. Talk about heat, right? And and I just tore through it and same with the world without end. And then I I wrote an email to Mr. Follett thinking he's never going to reply to this, but I have to tell him how much I loved his book and how it inspired me. Within eight hours, he wrote me back this long email about his process and like 
how it took him 10 years to write pillars. And, you know, it was, it was so encouraging that I was like, all right, I can do this. Maybe not 1000 page epics. That's not really where I am. Right it's now. hard to get 1000 page epics published these days. Anyway, it is. <laughs> it is. even in indie, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you have to be someone like Ken Follett to get away with it really. Yeah, so anyway, exactly. sorry. Yes, I no, no, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. And, you know, then I watched the miniseries and they're different. They made some changes for, you know, length and making it work for the screen. But I love those two. And reading his books, especially the Kingsbridge series, it, it, it just feels like slipping into home for me. So when when it came time to write a historical fiction book that I knew I wanted to share with the world. I've written others that are probably going to spend the rest of my life on the shelf. I knew it I had to go medieval. And, yeah. you know, I thought about what I love most about medieval history and Robin Hood came immediately to mind. It's one of my favorite legends. Yeah. Um, yeah. There have been some really wonderful adaptations of that for TV and some really horrible ones. I, I, I have to ask you who and I mean, I've never understood why people like Kevin Costner. I don't think he can act his way out of a paper bag. Honestly. I think think Kevin Costner does okay in Westerns. Other than that, he was never Robin Hood to me. Oh my gosh, no. (laughs) Never, ever was he Robin Hood. There was a great series. Over him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) There was a great British series, Robin Hood series. Own it. And I've watched it so many times. I love it. really good. But let's get back to your book, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So the character of Alice is really interesting because she's, she's tough, but she's, and and she's, and she's intelligent, but she has these blind spots too. You know, can you talk a little bit about her as a character? Sure, sure. So Originally, the main thing with Alice was that she was incapable of making decisions. That was my original kind of, you know, leaning with her. The problem with that when I got to writing is she had no agency. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like she's got to make. Isn't some... that one of the foundations of our book coaching that we do? Yeah. The character has to make a decision and, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so the book yeah. was originally about her learning how to make decisions. And I was like, well, that's not really an exciting story to read. because. (laughs) So I was like, so I still want her to struggle with decision making. So I'm going to make it so that she has trouble making the right decision. And that her loyalty is kind of in question, even in her own mind, a little bit, because, you know, she, she wants so badly to bring her family back together. That is the core of her world. And she wants to get her family back home to their village. Everything feels like it's been turned upside down for her since her brother went away to war. And I think by, by giving her that driving force, it adds a little bit more heart to her. Originally, she was kind of cold and calculating. I worked with another book coach. I, I gave them my manuscript for their practicum. And the first thing they came back with was, did you want her to be like a sociopath? I was like, no, not at all. This is a very old version of the book. Yeah. But I was just like, no, that's not what I'm going for. So things have to change. So I did a lot of work to soften her and her, um, her desire to restore her family and her friendship with Marion. She originally did not get along with her at all. But those two things really kind of softened her edges a little bit. 
So the toughness in her was always there. You know, she was always willing to do what had to be done. She's a fighter. She's not a squeamish person in most cases. And she lives in a rough world. I mean, you know, 12th century, anywhere was not great. Not great. Not great. Yeah. Especially for females. Yeah. Talking about her being tough. She is a really good archer. Now mm-hmm. tell me, what do you, have you done archery and stuff yourself? Yes. And so original in an earlier version of the book, Robin was a horrible archer. And it was like the secret that the married men kept, you know, <laughs> from everybody else. <laughs> that's kind and of funny. Alice, yeah, I thought so too, but people were like, that's too far from the legend. It's going to throw readers. Mm-hmm. And I had to come to terms with that. But that actually came from when I was volunteering at the Renaissance Festival the actor who played Robin and I, we used to have little mini archery tournaments between the two of us. Like every day we would meet up, you know, during my break and just shoot a few arrows against each other. Actually, not into each other. No, not into (laughs) each other. At the target. (laughs) Both of us facing the same direction. And I've always really liked archery. There's, there's, you know, something about, it's just such an ancient art. And I don't always think of it as warfare. People use it for entertainment. They Hunting. they use it to hunt, yeah, to subsist. So, mm-hmm. you know, it has so many applications. And I do have a bow and arrows. <laughs> and occasionally I'll shoot. It's just a lot of fun. I, I've, I've always enjoyed it. And to me, especially for where Alice ends up, and I don't want to spoil it at the end of the book, but you've read it. She had to be an archer. yeah yeah Yeah. and it's it's really interesting because archery is one of those things that remained kind of all right for women to take part in through the victorian age there was that whole sort of diana thing i think was was partly was partly i also did archery at summer camp when i was little and so it's like oh yeah and i there's something very physical and technical about this feeling you know i don't think my women are archers but there are archers so and and the thing that people don't realize is that the crossbow was not invented until was it the 14th century or the 15th yeah yeah because i looked that up to make sure i remember it's definitely after 12th and 13th early 13th so crossbows were invented around 7th century bc in china and then they made it to Greece around 4th century BC, but England wasn't using them in its armies. They they held off for a long time, favoring the longbow, which they're so famous for. But also, I don't think the crossbow ever made the leap from military application to, you know, to social use in the way that, yeah. that, that the standard or longbow would have. So, you know, I, I elected to keep it out of my book entirely. I thought that for the most part, it would it would kind of muddy the waters and on what the bow on what archery means to Alice. It's her way into in, into a path of her choosing. Really, it's 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 what enables her to to do what she wants in the world as much as possible. Okay, so let's talk about the thing that people always talk about with historical fiction, which is the research. How, yeah. What kind of research did you do for this? I mean, aside obviously, there's because it's it's a legend. It's not like history. So how did you approach that? So my first step was to read the original ballads of Robin Hood, which was a challenge there in Middle English. (laughs) (laughs) So this is before the standardization of spelling and grammar. 
the same word can be spelled eight different ways in the same in the single ballad. So it was definitely challenging, but I enjoyed it. And what was interesting to me is Robin's a little bit of a different character in the original ballads than we've come to know him. He's a little bit coarser. He challenges people to fights in order to for them to join his band. He's a little bit more martial, really, which is not surprising given the fact that he was a soldier in the Middle Ages. I looked into scholarship about the legends and the ballads, and I was surprised to learn that a lot of scholars think that he actually, you know, the legend came about well before the Crusades and that it was kind of repurposed as sort of a propaganda (laughs) during that time or shortly after it. So it it was kind of interesting to me. And in earlier versions, Robin was a lot coarser. He was more violent. He was, he was kind of like, this person's a problem. We just have to end them. So (laughs) I kind of calmed him down a little bit too, because I felt like that would be too jarring without my readers having also read the ballads and the scholarship that supported it. So that's kind of where I started my research, I I was fairly comfortable in the medieval world from my art history degree. I learned a lot about medieval England and Europe, Western Europe. And then I also, one of my favorite books was The Year 1000. I don't know if you've read this book. No, I have not. Oh, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. It just, ta- I mean, it's obviously, it's almost 200 years before Alice's story, but it, it, it gives you kind of the everyday life aspect. Yeah. I have a book like that called Montaigu. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. And that was that was a really important book for this story. The Great Courses, there was one called The Other Side of History, which starts in prehistory and goes up through the medieval era. So the lecture on medieval life, I enjoyed that. That was that was useful. You know, I, I spent a lot of time poking around the website for the Nottingham Castle Museum, mm-hmm. which is of course very different now from what it was in the 12th century. (laughs) But it was, they had some good resources. So that was nice, especially because I couldn't really get over there during COVID, especially. And I tend to, I tend to backload most of my research. I do just enough at the beginning now to get into the story. And then I fix all the mistakes later in editing. That's when I do most of my research. So you ever find that that makes you have to dramatically change the story when you do it that way? Sometimes it does, but for me, the best way for me to get to know my characters and how they relate interpersonally is to just write a draft. And if I need to change their circumstances to suit history, to me, that's easier than, than doing the research ahead of time. Because the other thing I'll struggle with is I'll info dump like crazy. If I do the research, I'm proud of the research. I want everyone to know about all the things I learned that are yeah. cool. So I'll I'll just load that in. Author's I, note, author's note, author's yeah, note. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think mine is a few pages long in this book. It's like, mm-hmm. here's a note on language. But yeah, I, I, I did a lot of that sort of research in the editing phases. For me, you know, Alice I knew, but to get to know the other characters and to get a feel for how I could kind of, especially with the characters who already exist in the legend, make them my own and develop them further. Like, I feel like Guy of Gisborne is never developed enough in any representations of the legend. And he's so fascinating to me. Yeah. So I loved that he went, yeah, I loved that he was, you know, this complicated slightly, I was never quite sure whether he was a good guy or a bad guy. 
which which I loved. And also he was <laughs> and his being related to Alice was was also this sort of interesting twist because it gave her divided loyalties all over the place. So let's go let's dive away from this now and I want you to talk a little bit about being a witch. How does this sure. affect your writing? How does it did it come into play at all with this book? So not so much this book on a story level. It will affect others on story levels that I have planned, but it definitely affected me as a writer. I have long suffered from imposter syndrome, which I think hits almost every writer on and off throughout their career. But I've I've been writing historical fiction for almost 20 years, and this is the first time I'm putting a book out in the world. Like I said, I've written several books that will live forever on the shelf because they're just not up to my standards. And diving into being a witch and into a lot of what's called shadow work really helped me that in combination with becoming a book coach helped me get past that enough to, to get this book moving. So it, it affected me in that way. And I'm actually writing a course called weave witchcraft into your writing that kind of combines yeah. the two. And it's um, more like working with planetary energies to give myself confidence where I need it or, I, I used astrological timing to choose when to release my book in part. Some of it was industry knowledge. Some of it was astrological yeah. timing, kind of a combination yeah. of the two. Well, but um, you never know. Maybe the industry thing is related to the astrological It could timing. be. It yes. could be. You know, I learned that for an indie debut, it's not good to have it come out between October and December because that's the holiday rush and the traditional Big books come out then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to do that with book one because nobody knows who I am yet. <laughs> well, hopefully so, a few more people will know after this podcast. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. yeah. yeah. Um, so I decided it had to be September because it was going to come out this year, no matter what. I wasn't going to let it wait another year. And so I, I, looked at that I have this I use this daily planetary guide and I'll show you I'll show you I know mm-hmm. it's on video but um and it gives me the astrological layout of the day basically so what does that mean I mean I mean I know you don't have time to explain it all but tell me how that sort of works sure so I'll turn I'll turn to the date of my book release which is the 18th of September and on this date for example The moon is in Aquarius, which is like, it's a good time to have something new, right? Which what's what's better for that than, you know, a new book. And it's lined up nicely in the sky with Mercury, which is in the sign of Libra. And Libra is all about balancing the scales and things working out for the best, justice, all that stuff. And Mercury is an important planet for writers, because it's all about communication. And, yeah, know, he's the messenger, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Also the trickster, but right. <laughs> just there's fun. that too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, to me, nothing's better for a plot reversal than a little bit of yeah. trickster mm-hmm. energy. So in looking at what would be going on in the skies in September, that was the best option. So that's what I went with. Got it. Can, can yeah. you look up the 21st and see what I that can. is like? <laughs> I can. That's the day my book comes out. Yeah, yeah. Let's see what's happening on that day. Okay, so 
the moon will be in Aries, which is a fire sign. And Ooh. now that could be good. That could be good. Let's see. What is Mercury up to? Mercury will still be in Libra. It'll be in a storm, which some people think, so a storm happens before and after a retrograde. And some people have difficulty with Mercury retrograde in storms, but I don't think writers tend to do as much because Mercury is kind of like the patron god of that activity. So, so um, I'm sort of pushing my chances a little bit by waiting till the 21st, right? Is that what you're saying? I, I think you're, you're close, but you're okay. Okay. Phew. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. I know. I have this sort of strange relationship with this kind of thing that in that um, I don't, I don't want to not believe it. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. yet my, my logical mind says, oh, come on. But then you go back and you look at how the ancients used these things. And sure, they were operating in a sense from a place of, quote unquote, ignorance, according to today's standards. But, yeah. but they did figure an awful lot out using those, using that information that they had the astrological and astronomical and all that kind of thing and then there's tarot mm-hmm. which is which is kind of spookily accurate <laughs> yeah it does seem to know exactly what's what i love tarot i love oh, it so much i'm an addict i just keep collecting decks which you know thank mm-hmm. you for sending me the one you sent me yeah, i know <laughs> i actually have one two three four five decks myself I- now Nice. But I only really use one every day. Yeah, I think that that's fair. There, you know, like I have the Jane Austen deck and I don't particularly like to use it, but sometimes I'll just take it out and look at the art. Yeah. Yeah. The artwork is pretty. And someday I'd like to just have the whole deck framed, you know, and hang on. So they, I feel like they kind of all have their purpose. You know, there's a reason that we're drawn to them and there might be a day when you pull out the deck that almost never gets used. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, the type of witchcraft I practice is solo intuitive eclectic witchcraft, which is kind of like cafeteria belief, right? I get okay. to choose what I'm going to believe in from multiple traditions. And I kind of feel like the way that these beliefs work is where they give us comfort and where they help us become better versions of ourselves, where they help us make decisions that lead us down a path we want to walk there's no harm in believing in it Mm -hmm. and none of us are really going to know until the end of this lifetime what's what if anything so i've had people say well what if there's just oblivion isn't i'm not going to know anyway yeah yeah it won't matter religion fulfills that function for a lot of people obviously Mm -hmm. i think people have a right to believe in whatever helps them personally and likewise um, yeah yeah exactly and And that wasn't oh sorry no go ahead (laughs) When I give people tarot readings, I say this used to be a game and used for entertainment. So take it, don't, don't go out and like change your entire life based on a card. I don't use them in that way. It's just kind of like, here are the paths for self-improvement available to you. Here are Mm -hmm. things you can do to, to get to this outcome. And there are, there are people who, if they pull a certain card, they'll upend their whole life. That's for them. I, I, I definitely agree with you. People can and should believe whatever they want to make life more joyful, more meaningful. My friend, Chris uh, Waldhair is also a tarot practitioner. And and her take is that those cards only reflect what is the circumstance right now. Mm -hmm. Like it's just a reflection of 
that day and the next day could be completely different, you know, which would argue against like upending your whole life just because you pulled a card. Definitely. And it's kind of an interesting art because you're, you're looking at a possible future, but it's just a possible future. It's not, Mm -hmm. nothing in the future is ever set in stone because it hasn't happened yet. So it's always very interesting to do readings for folks who maybe haven't had a reading before. They've had a very different kind of reading and the tarot cards are just a tool. They're just, it's a visual tool. Really what, what the reading is about is about empathy and intuition. Hmm. I I mean, I, I can get just as much if I'm sitting with someone who's open, open open-minded, open-hearted, I can get just as much without the cards. If you think about it, there's also an element of therapy in there too, you know, of people who are good therapists who can read people or who, who, who will, who exude something that brings something out in other people too. Yeah. And that's, it's very mysterious. It's, there's nothing kind of super scientific about it. And I think that's why, that's why there's so much scope for different beliefs in a way, because we really can't explain everything. We really don't have access to, the ultimate absolute truth about everything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 true. But I always kind of think of it as the things we think of as science were magic until we found a way to prove them. Yeah. So is it just a matter of time before somebody proves empathy and intuition and finds a way to qualitatively measure it or quantitatively measure it? I don't know. But those are in my witchcraft practice, those and in my book coaching practice, those two qualities are, the, are really what I'm using. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's just working with energy from different natural resources. I, I don't, I don't curse or hex people. I, for me, that's not a path I want to walk for some people. That's their thing. And I'm not going to judge them, but power, power for good, good, right? Isn't that what it is? Use the power for good. So, you know, I, 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 I don't personally um, perform that type of witchcraft, yeah. but, and coming into it, it was, it was an interesting path because I was raised Roman Catholic. So ah. you know, there's, there's a, a big difference between the two in some ways. And also in some ways and not other ways. Yeah, yes. Because yeah. there's a lot of sort of magical thinking in Catholicism for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, transubstantiation right there. And I would say one of the things that set me on this path was my art history degree. I learned so much about the Catholic church and studying art history of the Western world, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is what it mostly was focused on. There weren't at the time a lot of art historical survey classes or other classes in other traditions that I could expose myself to. But in learning so much about the business of the church, I I started to go a different path because yeah. I, that was not a good fit for me. Of course, my own feelings about being as that my heroes in my in my Languedoc novels are all Cathars. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. What the church did to them and to their whole culture is just a crime, really. It, it really is. It really is. Mm. And, you know, there, so you asked if like the witchcraft came into my book. Sometimes it was a struggle because Alice is Christian and she believes in heaven and hell. And she's very worried about what St. Peter is going to say when she you know, gets to heaven one day. And I, I I have my upbringing and understanding of the Christian religion and the Catholic religion to, to pull from that. But it also kind of, there were moments when it felt like it was at odds with who I am as a person. <laughs> it 
<laughs> it's like, this is, but you know, there's a lot of times I tell myself, okay, you're not Alice. You only played her at the Renaissance Fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's, it's true. But as historical novelists, I mean, I'm often having to have, you have characters who have these beliefs who are really religious and I'm not a religious person at all. So, but even the Cathars, it's not the same Christian belief, but they still have those beliefs. But here's the thing. Now we're both book coaches and we're not going to talk a, a lot about this, but it's really interesting because I felt like studying and becoming a book coach just really upped my game with my own writing. Did you have the Absolutely. same experience? 100%. And after I gave this manuscript for the Red Fletch to another book coach, I re-blueprinted the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was... Well, talk about what the blueprint is a little tiny bit. Yeah. So the blueprint for fiction is a 17-step process that kind of combines how how the writer will see the book in the, in the marketplace and gives them a foundation for for putting the book together. It doesn't involve a whole lot of actual writing of the book. There's a couple steps at the end where you write beginning and ending scenes, but it's about seeing the book as a whole, you know, stepping back and seeing the forest and not just a few trees. And I really liked the duality of the approach of envisioning it in the marketplace while also kind of planning it because it forces the writer. I won't say force. It invites the writer is a better word to not necessarily write to the marketplace because I don't believe that writers should have to do that, but it, it invites them to think about their ideal reader and how they're going to receive the text and and interpret the text and make it their own. Because I think that's what happens whenever we put a book out into the world. It stops being just ours. Yeah. You know, yeah, our name is on the <laughs> cover and we created it, we hold the copyright, etc. But it also belongs to the readers who consume it. And it's like looking at a painting, you know, we're gonna come to it with our own experiences and biases and add our own meaning to it. And I think that's the beauty of art. So the blueprint really allows the writer to see both sides of that. And the other piece of it that I like is, and this is something I had already practiced through my education, but for a writer who's just coming into creative writing or coming into writing a book, it allows them to see the book as a separate entity than themselves. So that when it comes time to get feedback on the writing, they can do so more objectively. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. And, And I describe it when I'm working with writers as just taking you off the page a little bit so you can actually see you're not putting precious words on the page, you're actually looking at it from a bit of a distance, which I find very helpful. And and I think a lot of writers do. And it's helped me revise things majorly ever since then. Anyway, when I'm not going to go on and on about it, but yeah, let's, let's just talk about, well, I'll put a link in the show notes for this. If I am hoping that I will get it up. Yes, I will. I will. It'll, it'll be up the next few weeks for our book launch party. Yes. It's a I'm Zoom so event. excited. I know. I know. It's going to be lots of fun. We're going to have giveaways. We'll probably be, we have the lovely Lorraine Norwood is our, is hosting us and she will interview us in a, in a very informal way. Maybe we'll read a little bit from our books and it'll be open Q and A's for the audience. And I just think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's because, you know, what people who don't write or haven't put books out don't realize that 
book publication day is like a thud. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing really happens. And, you know, you want to say, yay, yay, my book is out. But there's like, it's this quiet, quiet thing. It's just suddenly for sale out um, in the world. You know, it's suddenly on the internet. So I, I, and, and sort of trying to do something by yourself, especially over Zoom, feels really kind of odd. Like, here, look at me. So I think that having, having two people who can enter into a dialogue and just celebrate together is, is really just so much better, which is why as soon as I found out your book was coming out three days before mine, I was like, oh, my God, let's do that together. So I was so excited when you, when you asked me about that. I literally danced around the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to people I know getting to know you as a writer. And I hope lots of people will buy your book and read it because it's just delightful. Thank and you. yeah, and I will, and I'm really looking forward to volume two find out what happens because you leave it on a little bit of a cliffhanger there I the do end. I'm a yeah. little bit evil like that yeah but you know but enough was tied up so that it didn't feel like like didn't make me angry it's not an angry cliffhanger it's just like yeah not a, just like ooh, what's coming next you know? so, well last but, night I crossed the 25,000 word threshold in my draft of book two so awesome it's awesome. moving along and I'm, I'm looking at an early to mid 2023 release for it probably because I like to I like yeah. to give each book its time you know but it is in the works <laughs> good there are some some writers who will write the entire trilogy or the entire series before putting them out so that they can release them really quickly yeah I don't know I like to have some time for readers to respond to a book and and have the other one think marinating in my head and do take what I've learned from the first one and apply it to the next one, you know? Oh, definitely. I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. And this first book has been a learning experience of the best kind. First foray into indie publishing. (laughs) Definitely learned a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, thank you so much for indulging me with this, this little thing I do. Yeah. Thank you. I'm honored to have been a part of it. My pleasure. So that's, again, this is Margaret McNellis and her book, The Red Fletch, is coming out on September 18th. And we're having a party celebrating two books on September 21st, 2021. Soon, yes. (laughs) You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google, Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.